Dire Combustion, or how two 17th century bonfire nights helped stoke up religious hatred. Today, it seems insane that so much energy and indeed life was wasted over whether someone chose to be a Protestant or a Catholic. To us, it is as if our ancestors might as well have had major constitutional crises, massacres and wars over which football team they happened to support. The so-called superhoops crisis arose because the king insisted on his right to marry a supporter of Queen's Park Rangers. Parliament was adamant that only Crystal Palace fans could sit upon the throne of England and now feared that the king's heir might grow up supporting the R's. So on the anniversary of Palace's cup final replay against Manchester United, parliamentary forces assembled at Selhurst Park, wearing their distinctive red and blue stripes, shouting eagles at the arrival of their mascot, a man in a comedy bird costume. But at the beginning of the 17th century, a Catholic conspiracy that became known as the Gunpowder Plot confirmed suspicions that the Papists were dangerous extremists and the enemies of English freedom. Today, of course, it is almost impossible to imagine terrorist outrages being committed by religious extremists. I mean, the very idea that atrocities could be carried out in the name of God, or, say, Allah. All right, you get the idea. English Catholics had waited a long time for the death of Queen Elizabeth, with great hope that the new monarch would bring an end to their persecution. Although James I was a Protestant, they had believed him to be far more sympathetic to their plight. But within a year or so, bitter disillusionment had set in among certain Catholics, including one Robert Catesby. Hmm, we don't like this new king, and his parliament are even worse. But it's not as if there would be any way of getting rid of the whole lot of them in one go. A thoughtful sip of beer, and then someone said, Unless... The first meeting of the Gunpowder Plot conspirators was on the 20th of May, 1604, in the Dog and Drake in the Strand. Normally, when you wake up the next morning, you realise what a complete load of rubbish you've been talking the night before. The mistake the Gunpowder Plotters made was to stick with the plan once they had sobered up. The idea was to tunnel under the House of Lords and hide barrels of gunpowder underneath a spot where both houses and the new king would be gathered for the state opening of Parliament, and then blow them all up, and then have a rebellion, and, well, well, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. However ill thought out the second part of the plan, the murder of the king, all his ministers and the members of Parliament came pretty close to succeeding. Even half as much gunpowder would have wiped out the entire ruling class of the country in one moment. All the noblemen who effectively kept order in the shires, the Privy Council, who managed the country's finance and foreign policy, all the bishops who ruled over the church, even Black Rod would have perished, leaving the country without anyone to, well, do whatever Black Rod does. Footnote. It depends on which one you are referring to. Black Rod is either the personal attendant of the Sovereign in the House of Lords, or a male strippogram, available for hen parties operating in the West Midlands area. The leader of the conspirators was Robert Catesby, by rights, he should be the figure burned on bonfires around the land on November the 5th, but Penny for the Robert doesn't have quite the same ring to it. Guy Fawkes was a former soldier who had gained experience with gunpowder fighting in the Spanish Netherlands. Guy now needed to go underground, so after much thought, he hit on the imaginative alias John Johnson. Security at the Palace of Westminster was slack to say the least, and when the conspirators discovered that a coal cellar directly underneath the House of Lords was available for rent, 
it was quickly leased to this trustworthy-looking John Johnson chap, who promptly started filling it up with barrels of gunpowder. Thirty-six barrels of explosives were all ready for November the 5th, plus a packet of sparklers, mulled wine and some overcooked jacket potatoes. In fact, the original date for the opening of Parliament had been early October, but following an outbreak of plague in the capital, it was put back a month. It's recently been argued that, having now sat around for so long, the gunpowder would have decayed and thus would have failed to detonate. There's no way of knowing this for certain, but the sensation of dramatically lighting a fuse and then wondering why nothing is happening is still reenacted every bonfire night. The delay also created time for more anxious conspirators to have second thoughts. One of them apparently sent an anonymous note to his wife's cousin, Lord Montague, warning him to keep away from Parliament on the day of the state opening. The letter prompted a search of the Palace of Westminster, where at midnight on November the 4th, a man was discovered beside a surprisingly large amount of wood. He said his name was John Johnson, and that he was standing guard over his master's supply of winter fuel. They pulled away a few bushels of sticks to reveal 36 huge barrels of gunpowder. Oh, that! Yeah, well, um, the, the shop had run out of fire lighters. <laughs> yeah. The discovery was a sensation. Every lord, nobleman and bishop was staying in London that night, anxiously wondering if they ordered a wench up to their room, would it be itemised separately on the hotel bill or just added to the total? When news spread that November the 5th was intended to be the last morning they would ever see, they shared a sense of moral outrage and divine deliverance. Guy Fawkes was initially brazen in his proud admission of his murderous intentions, although bearing in mind what they went on to do to him, he might have been better off saying he was very, very sorry. There are famously two signatures by Guy Fawkes, the neat and legible before-torture example and the pathetic, shaky-scrawled after-torture sample. They eventually learned the names of the other conspirators and that days and days of agonising, unendurable agony does nothing to improve a man's handwriting. Robert Catesby and the other plotters had been in the Midlands declaring that the king and his heir were dead as they tried to gather support for a Catholic uprising. No one was very interested. Their plan to kidnap the king's nine-year-old daughter had failed miserably, and eventually they made a last stand at Warwick Castle. Here they discovered that their gunpowder was damp, and with the genius that had marked every stage of the project, they hit upon a brilliant solution. I know. We could put all our gunpowder by the fire to dry out. Yeah. Putting gunpowder really close to the fire. Yeah. That seems like a totally flawless plan to me. It seems tragically appropriate that their gunpowder plot literally blew up in their faces. James I, no doubt shocked by how close he and his family had come to death, declared that the date should be celebrated evermore. Hoodies letting off bloody air bombs at two in the morning from September onwards. It is quite possible that the letter to Montague was a forgery by the security services, who had known about the plot for some time, but were waiting until the last moment to expose it, thus creating the maximum impact and giving themselves the widest reign to act against conspirators and any other Catholics they didn't like the look of. If this was the case, then it was certainly very effective. But current conspiracy theories that the whole thing was cooked up by the Protestant establishment probably with the help of the CIA and the Israeli security services, don't really stand the test of looking at any source material that is not on the internet. The government of the 17th century may have been winning the war on terror, 
but they still felt the need to stoke up the fear of Catholicism and the threat it represented to the English establishment. Sixty years later, the whole of London was one big bonfire, and the Catholics were given the blame, even though the authorities knew they had nothing to do with it. It was the night of September the 2nd, 1666. In Pudding Lane, a baker's wife woke up her husband. Here, you did put the fire out in the kitchen oven, didn't you? No, love, that's just one of those over-the-top health and safety fixations. I mean, really, what's the worst that could happen? Before long, flames were spreading through the house, and the couple escaped over the rooftops, leaving their maid behind, who became the first casualty of the Great Fire of London. The inferno soon spread to surrounding buildings, and to his irritation, the Mayor of London was woken up. He took one look and famously uttered, A woman might piss it out. Whether this was actually attempted is not recorded, but by morning the situation was becoming serious. The fire might have been contained to a few streets, had it not been for the indecision and incompetence of his local government. Lord Mayor, the fire is spreading fast. If we act fast and destroy a few buildings in its path, we will create a gap and save many, many more. Oh, absolutely. I mean, as soon as this proposal has been submitted to the Housing Safety Subcommittee, which meets on a bi-monthly cycle, though it may be too late to get anything on the agenda for a meeting on the 28th. The mayor refused to pull down any buildings without the owner's consent, and so, unsurprisingly, householders refused to have their homes blown up, hoping that the fire might miraculously change direction. But the densely packed wooden houses with their thatched roofs could not have been more inflammable, and the fire was well on the way to consuming pretty well every building between Fetter Lane and the Tower of London. The diarist Samuel Pepys fled his home, having taken trouble to dig a big hole in his garden, to bury a parmesan cheese and a few bottles of wine. He rushed to inform the King and the Duke of York, who became involved in directing efforts to save the capital. But for three days the fire burnt, eventually destroying 13,000 houses, over 80 churches, 44 company halls and the old St Paul's Cathedral. There were surprisingly few recorded deaths, though many of the anonymous poor were probably cremated in their homes but five-sixths of the area within the city walls was destroyed. It was a calamity without equal. Central London was reduced to a pile of smouldering ashes. And the baker from Pudding Lane said, All right, all right, you don't have to go on about it. In fact, such a catastrophe demanded a more meaningful scapegoat than a common house fire fanned by a strong wind in a dry summer. Rumours spread that the fire had been deliberately started by Jesuits, by the Dutch, by Spaniards, in fact, a Frenchman was virtually dismembered by a London mob, while the King's Guard took it upon themselves to start attacking people who spoke poor English. Eventually, a French watchmaker, Robert Hubert, confessed to starting the fire, though it became clear during his trial that his story was nonsense. The King's chief minister commented, Neither the judges nor any present at the trial did believe him guilty, but that he was a poor, distracted wretch, weary of his life and chose to part with it. He was publicly hanged at Tyburn, and even though he was a Protestant, an official plaque was later put on the monument to the fire, blaming the Popish faction for the Inferno, where it remained until 1831, soon to be replaced with a plaque blaming Muslim extremists. But it is important to understand that England's growing anti-Catholicism over the 17th century wasn't just about sectarian religious bigotry, 
Catholicism was equated with the totalitarian monarchies of France and Spain. The existence of Parliament and the relative liberties enjoyed by Englishmen were seen as the product of a Protestant society. This issue finally came to a head at the climax of the century, with the accession of England's last Catholic monarch, James II, in 1685. The so-called Popish faction, who had tried to blow up Parliament and apparently burned down the whole of London, now had their own man on the throne. Within three years, he would be driven from the country, as the Protestant champion of Europe, William of Orange, landed in England to take the crown, forming a unique contract between monarch and the now supreme Parliament that had no equivalent anywhere in the world. On the day he and his army arrived in Torbay, the bonfires were already burning across the country. He had landed on November the 5th.